This is the Raptors Room, a show entirely dedicated to your 2019 champion Toronto Raptors. I'm your host, as always, Joshua Howe, and we will be discussing the latest and greatest in the realm of Raptors basketball, from Scotty Barnes' vibes to Pascal Siakam's spins. Today's guest is a writer and podcaster at Raptors Republic, one half of Minute Basketball, and still, despite potentially being four foot nine, the undisputed best dunker in the blogosphere. It's Samson Folk. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I've come to terms with the fact that my height will be affirmed. Um, I'm in Toronto for the, the famed Raptors Public Christmas party. And so everyone will finally get to see what my actual physical stature is, uh, <laughs> much of which has been kept in the shadows for a long time now. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had several guesses. I'm, uh, I'm not sure how close or how far off I've been, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think uh, it, it'll all be at most decided when eventually, inevitably, you participate in a Raptors Republic 3-on-3 and uh, you go up against the immovable object that is Blake Murphy. And uh, we'll see what happens uh, at that point. I, I, There's I can't a, wait for that. a very simple calculus for that. It's not so much go up against, more so just go around. And I, I don't expect to have too much trouble doing that. Sorry, Blake, but I'm, uh, I'm going to snatch those ankles, brother. They're gone. Well, the son becomes the father. That's, <laughs> I, I feel like I'd be watching a baptism. Okay, um, so we're going to talk about the uh, Raptors week that was, as we typically do here on this podcast. And the main focus I want to stick to today is talking about one Pascal Siakam uh, former Toronto Raptors all-star, still capable of playing at an all-star level, shockingly. Uh, some people may find that absurd, um, but he's still that good. Um, clearly still working his way back from a torn labrum in his shoulder uh, that kept him out for an extended period. And he's been back, you know, less than 10 games, I think around six now, five or six. Um, and... <sighs> I kind of just want to start with this. You and I, uh, especially you at this point, even more so than I, I think, have our, pa- our fingers on the pulse of Raptors Twitter, which in, a, which in and of itself is a bubble, admittedly. Um, but also a bit of the larger casual fan conversation and even some of the more hardcore fans. And um, the conversation around Siakam has been uh, interesting, to say the least. And... I'm just going to start right here. Uh, it's been a lot of hatred for Siakam as a player, as a player, mostly what I've seen, right? It's been a lot of like, after a bad performance, trade Siakam. Siakam's not a superstar player, all this kind of stuff. Uh, where does that come from? Yeah, this is really interesting. It goes back to, you and I were talking about, prior to this, Louis Sassman, the fantastic writer, uh, that he is talking about value in the NBA and how it relates to players. And I wrote something similar when OG Ananobi signed his extension. I can't remember the exact name of it, but I was like, I'm pretty sure he steals uh, optimism from the clutches of death, I think was something that I named that piece. And I was talking about how the contract optics always muddy and toxify the conversations around players and that how by OG signing a deal that was worth significantly less than what he's actually worth. And by the way, you're worth whatever you get paid, unless you're underpaid. Then I will fight for your right for more money. But if you, if you, the optics are that you're overpaid, whatever, get your money, dude. But OG got underpaid, so he is Teflon to the fan base because we all have this broken Nate Duncan, Daryl Morney, you know, cap brain where we have to view players as these these types of assets and all that kind of stuff. And Pascal Siakam signed a max contract and heavy quotes on the max because he makes $31 million a year. Mm -hmm. And I put out a tweet of, you know, contemporaries around that contract. And so this year, Chris Middleton makes 36. This year, Drew Holiday makes 31. Giannis will make the max as well. That's three max salary players on one team. LeBron makes 41 this year. Steph makes 45. Within that max grouping, there is more room to delineate than there is between Pascal, 
and OG Ananobi as far as in contracts or even like Luke Kennard, for example. The difference between Curry and Pascal is the same between Pascal and Luke Kennard. And I don't think when we talk about contracts or players, we delineate within that max region. Basically, if there's like a contract like Russell Westbrook or John Wall by their fifth years where it's like 48 million, that's kind of, you know, putted around as like a hilarious talking point in media. But for the most part, we just say max player and we end the conversation there. And that's where these, I guess, expectations of Pascal Siakam to be more than he is. And not in a way that it's misguided as far as like what he's doing on the court, but in a way that like he's a max player as is Kawhi, LeBron, Giannis, players of that ilk. And there's no nuance past that. It's just the term max. And it has colored the conversation around so much. And you brought up knowing the bubble that is Raptors Twitter. And I'm in a really interesting spot because I do the Raptors reaction podcast after every game. And I look at the top quick reaction comment, which is a discus comment section under Raptors Public. I view Raptors Twitter during the games. I see the Raptors Republic comment section. Those are two different demographics. RRs being older, Twitters being younger. And they both express the same very short-sighted sentiment that Pascal Siakam somehow doesn't have it, is significantly overpaid. And with the help of some, not malicious media members, but media members who find it easier to criticize Pascal than a lot of other players and will even, you know, in their attempt to be providing the fans with something, because that's what we do. That's our job. We provide people with our thoughts on a certain thing. That's what we're selling our thoughts. That's what it is. They sell their thoughts on Pascal, which are sometimes ludicrously negative to a large swath of fans. And that is gobbled up because it's an appeal to authority and the appeal to authority in sports fandom from like shock jock guys or anything like that typically can lead conversations to really bad places. That's how we got Pascal where he was getting not like terrible comments about his play, but xenophobic racist comments and stuff like that. And there's still a little bit of holdover from that. But right now I think it's just at a place where he's on trial every game when he shouldn't be. And I don't know how it got to that point, but he's sitting in a place where it seems like even if he has a good game, people are saying trade value. And people are saying, well, who did he affect in a bad way? For example, the Golden State Warriors game, Pascal was far and away the best player on the floor. Like he, he was excellent. He navigated the best defense in the league efficiently. And while the rest of the stars on the team or pseudo stars, if Fred, uh, Gary Trent Jr., Scotty Barnes combined for 12 of 45. Pascal navigated Draymond Green and all the help around that. And I see the top quick reaction comment is suggesting like trade him. He's infringing on Scotty Barnes and that kind of stuff. And it's like, this is the type of conversation that is being had around a player. You're approaching from a fan base point of view, the point of no return. And we do see that happen with certain players where they just have to get out. Ben Simmons is talking about this in Philadelphia and from a mental health standpoint, whether Pascal is on Twitter or whether he's doing whatever, this type of stuff where you can feel the weight of every single layup that rims out, he's not allowed to just go out and play because every game is a referendum. And this even extended to the, the broadcast, the home broadcast, where Alvin Williams was openly suggesting that you never know what you're going to get from Pascal. It can be good one game, bad the next. In a stretch where Pascal had one bad game over five. And he's also only played seven games on the season after six months off from a torn labrum, which he had surgery on. And Pascal also last season approximated somewhere near all-star value. And the year before was an all-NBA player. It's, it's very lazy and it's very lowbrow to peddle that idea to a large audience who's listening to you as the voice of authority to just say, you know, off the cuff, well, this guy, you never know what you're going to get. When in reality, you're pretty sure you're going to get good stuff from Pascal game in and game out. To what degree, that can be quibbled about. But just good or bad seems silly. And then also referring to him as selfish when there's been no indication at any point in Pascal's career that he's a selfish player. It's, it's a very strange conversation around him right now. Very long-winded, I'm sorry. But it's, <laughs> no. it is curious. That's great. I mean, like, you're, you got into all the things I want to get into, but it's good. Like it's pouring out of you. I can see it because like 
you, like myself, uh, we watch these games very closely and our opinion of what we have watched is uh, quite different uh, from this general take that I agree with you. I don't think Sack has been bad at all. He had one poor game and I'm also still, uh, I think more than some people, um, you know, I just value the humanness a lot in the NBA and like a dude who is coming back to the NBA, the best basketball league in the world, whether you've been an all-star in it or not before coming back from a major surgery, a surgery that he's talked about as like a big deal for him, like his first ever surgery, not only physically, but it was mentally a hurdle to get through. He's had several extended quotes about this. Um, he's less than 10 games back and, and every night is dealing with tons of expectations. Like you're saying, unrealistic expectations. Um, you know, that's a lot. It's just a lot to shoulder. And uh, I don't think people factor that in enough, but like to your point, um, unrealistic expectations ruin enjoyment. Uh, and people seem to love to do that in sports. I'm not entirely sure what that is. I think with Siakam, he does suffer from, which is very strange because usually you have an NBA team that wins a title and every player on that team, or at least most of them become untouchable in the eyes of the fan base, because especially when it's the first title in franchise history, right? That's a golden team. Everybody loves that team. It happened for Kyle, but obviously for Kyle, there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with it. Um, then a bunch of those other guys are gone. Uh, but like you even saw it with like Gasol, right? Who was not around for that long of time. Uh, and he hardly ever got below back. Uh, he did to some degree, but not to the nearly uh, to the degree that Siakam did. And I just can't help but think a lot of it has to do with Siakam stepping into the guy role. Uh, I did quotations. Obviously, people can't see that, but I air quotes. <laughs> uh, stepping into the you know focal point offensively on the team in place of Kawhi Leonard, who is legitimately you know at when at his peak, he is a top five player. Um, probably still is, you know, obviously with an injury right now, but you know, that's a hard act to follow. It's an unrealistic expectation of fans to believe that Siakam could just become Kawhi Leonard, uh, whether they're, they're on similar contracts or not. Um, and I just wonder how much, you know, a player moving into that same type of role. Now, this is the guy who was on a championship team. Who's moving into that next step. You've watched him have a historically you know, just wild uh, path in the NBA to where he's come from, to where he is. So there's also an added expectation that maybe he's going to take another step. Maybe he'll get to that Kawhi level. Um, And this is the spot you put him in. And if he doesn't do that very quickly, all of these things compound upon each other. And then you throw in the insanity of uh, a pandemic and the Raptors having to go to Tampa where Everyone on the team, not just Pascal, was very clear that it was extremely hard on them mentally. Um, the bubble was not a good time for Siakam. Uh, obviously, played against that, you know Boston in that series, and not only were they just really well set up to deal with him on the court, uh, he was having a difficult time off of it as well as was the rest of the team. And then, yeah, you go ahead and play another season and ends up being a, a really difficult season in general, just away from Toronto. And, you know, that, and that's it, right? And now you're here. So that's pretty much been his time uh, as that guy on the team. And, you know, that's, it's not something that's very repl- uh, replicable, right? There's not too many situations you can look at and be like, yeah, I can draw from this to compare his, his time in Toronto to. And, you know, I didn't end up tweeting it out, but... Uh, I've thought multiple times and I'm like, man, if Siakam leaves this team, no one better be surprised because, you know, he's just dealing with, he had to leave, what was it, uh, Instagram, I think, this past summer or his last summer. I can't remember because time's a flat circle, but uh, he left because just the comments, like you were saying, were, were insane. So it's just, it's just, it's just nuts. Um, and it all goes back to, uh, like you're talking about, like the, the expectations and, and the value and what that means the max contract well one thing i want to say that is probably the most concise look and if you are familiar or intimate with the raptors fan base this will definitely resonate and og ananobi one of my favorite players ever i think the ongoing bit of the man who never talks 
And the fact that all his teammates know him as a talkative, funny, charismatic guy, but he deprives the media and the outside world of that. Incredible. And I love his game. He did not play a single minute on the way to the championship. In, in, but he is loved by the fan base, largely because of his contract situation. Pascal Siakam scored 32 one of the most high-efficiency scoring outbursts in game one of the NBA Finals. He scored, by the way, and this is not hyperbole, he scored the game-winning basket in isolation against one of the greatest defenders of all time, (laughs) Draymond Green. Pascal Siakam did that. Swim move, push shot. That was the game-winning basket. Mm -hmm. Sealed the first championship. Mm -hmm. The level of compassion afforded to both of those guys operates in completely different spheres. This is why expectation mixed with uh, fickle fandom is really nasty business because when, you know, when things were going good for the Raptors, then it was Jason Tatum sucks and Pascal Siakam is better than Jimmy Butler and he's better than uh, Pandemic P. He's better than like way off P. He's better than all these guys. And, you know, a tough stretch of basketball. And for the record, by the way, Paul George, also a guy who, a big reason for why he had down seasons for the record was because he had the same shoulder injury that Pascal did. And he said it completely dominated the outlook of his game for a while. But, and I don't mean this to be like no criticism of Pascal is available. It's just, it's in a strange place and there's very little compassion for a player who looms so large in the Raptors now, even more storied history. And if you were going to say, well, Pascal hasn't been as good on defense as he should be, I totally agree. But here's the thing. I have not seen anybody do a Twitter thread of OG Ananobi's missed closeouts or OG Ananobi falling asleep off ball. And for the record, I love OG, but it's there. You can find it. The, The biggest person who does this on the Raptors more than anybody is Scotty Barnes. He's a rookie, so he gets some leeway. But you have a lot of people really hyper-focusing on what Pascal does poorly. And also within the framework of the Raptors defense, sometimes people misidentify who's making the mistakes. So you have, you know, casual fans who have no understanding of the, the, the way the Raptors cycle through rotations or their defensive principles. All they know is they give up corner threes and you have somebody who's willing to put, you know, <laughs> they're willing to put up like, a grouping of videos on Twitter and say, look at all these mistakes Pascal makes. Like against the Warriors, the Warriors run a scissor action and Scotty Barnes was supposed to seal at the top and not follow Draymond through the paint. Pascal was at the bottom. He's supposed to stay there. Scotty cycles through. Gary Trent leaves the wrong man and a player gets wide open. And Pascal is the guy left to say, oh, I guess there needs to be a closeout here. And so the culpability people think, well, Pascal missed the rotation. Well, no, they guarded a scissor action earlier in the game, and this is what they did. Scotty and Gary both guarded it differently now, and Pascal is left trying to clean it up. It's, that's an example. Of course, mm-hmm. Pascal has been, he's cheated too much, he's been lazy at times, and he's been below where he should be as a defender. But when people are so ready to pick apart his defensive game, but they don't even know the defensive principles of what the Raptors are trying to do, and any Anytime he's near the ball, they're just looking for what he does wrong. This is where he's just not awarded any of the leeway that basically every other player in the NBA is. This level of polarization around Pascal, and I don't mean to be too online, because if somebody's listening (laughs) to this podcast and saying, well, you know, really, right? Like somebody could be listening to this podcast and say, I just watch the games. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on the comment sections and all that. But I, I do believe I'm representing an honest... Um, articulation of that mm-hmm. sentiment that comes from there. He is not, you know, he passes in there too much. He should be better about getting a jump stop in the lane and working from there. He is not as good a passer outside to in as he should be. He's a better inside out passer. There are real critiques of his game. Of course, the mm-hmm. Boston game and the Utah game, both not only did he not look right as far as physically, which isn't really his fault, but the mental preparation for the game and understanding what he was supposed to do from a decision-making standpoint was really poor, Mm -hmm. but it's two of five and he's coming back from this type of thing. Patience seems important. And by the way, for anybody who's talking about the Scotty Barnes thing, I'm sure I'll end up writing a piece about it at some point, but 
Scotty Barnes, the assists, huge bump since Pascal returned. The assist percentage, huge bump. And on mm-hmm. basically no more turnovers. Scotty Barnes, the reads he makes as a passer are now easier in the half court than they have ever been. And the defense, does it, is there a correlation? This is now, this is the thing. Is there a correlation between Pascal returning and the defense dropping? You know, I really struggle to believe that. I think it's a coincidental thing. And I've looked at this and there is OG has been as poor or worse than Pascal during this stretch. OG's still a phenomenal defender. Gary Trent Jr., a little less potent. Scotty Barnes, an astronaut. These things were coming around in a meaningful way, and Pascal happened to join the team as they were nosediving defensively. I think it's, and this is basically the Pascal conversation, it is really easy for somebody to just say, they're one in six with him. You know, uh, the defense has been ranked 30th since November, what, November 1st, or like October 28th or something like that. And mm-hmm. Pascal came back on the seventh. And to just say, these two go together, two and two, Pascal has collapsed and completely compromised the whole defense. That seems a little easy, don't you think? <laughs> like Pascal, who has been near all NBA level defense for a couple of years now, the Raptors have won over 200 games with him in the lineup, less than 120. Like we can just probably say he hasn't collapsed and destroyed a defense, a five-man defense as a single guy. But people seem to think, well, now they're bad at defense. This is Pascal. I'm just saying, Pascal hasn't been perfect defensively. He's made a lot of mistakes. But the nuance seems to be important there. <laughs> As it usually is. Um, not, to yeah. mention, not to mention Fred VanVleet, uh, groin injury. And uh, there have been games where he clearly it looks affected there. And he's been saving himself for specific moments in the game to try to take over. Um, and he's still been the best defender. <laughs> yeah, is, right? Which is... Shout out to Fred. <laughs> a warrior. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, but this is what I'm talking about when I, I mentioned it, I think the other day on Twitter, but this is what I'm talking about when it, in terms of like, Pascal is not, um, you know, when you go and defend a player, some people think it's like, Oh, you just don't want to critique this guy. Like he is, you know, the media, whoever is like just keeping him safe because he's the Raptors max player and whatever. Um, there is a difference between uh, looking at everything from a micro perspective and a macro perspective. And the micro perspective seems to be what largely dominates things like the Twitter bubble, which is not a surprise because Twitter is a reactive medium. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where you're going to get, you know, well, it's time to trade Siakam because look at this game he just had. Well, you're just reacting to this one game. And if you're going to actually try to, you know, and some people, they don't want to do this. They just want to be a fan. They want to be mad for a night or whatever. Okay. If you want to do that, that's cool. That's your prerogative as a fan. Um, but if you're trying to be serious about analysis here and just, uh, you know, taking in Siakam as a, as a basketball player and what his outlook is for the season, you've also got to take in the macro perspective, um, uh, and what that looks like a big picture, um, and not just within one forty-eight minute window, uh, and you have to factor in, you know, all the outside stuff, everything that you brought up already. Uh, it just, it just needs to be involved. I mean, it just, it was so like, I, I was laughing to myself the other night where he had, you know, his massive bounce back game, one of the best games of his career. Um, you know, one of the best performances I've ever seen him do. Definitely the best in a long time, right after his terrible game, um, which was obviously the the worst one of his, uh, you know, um, comeback since he's come back. And it was just, you know, I, I'm waiting for all the same people to come back and be like, you know, trade Siakam, which I'm sure they will because they seem to have, you know, want to be defensive, whatever. Uh, but that's just what I need from macro perspective, right? One night he will look like that. Sure. Because he's coming back from an injury and there's all these other different things. Um, he's meshing himself back with a new team. There's a, there's a million reasons. And then, then, and then the next night he'll look like an all NBA level player because at his peak, that's what he can be. Um, we've seen it before. It's not a surprise. He is that good. No, is he a top five player? No, he's not. We've never seen him be that guy. Maybe he'll never be the guy. That's okay. 95, 90, I guess more than 95, 99% of the players in the NBA, they're not top five guys. Right. Um, and you know, it's just, I think important to keep in mind, um, even as a fan, when you're looking at, um, how harsh you're going to be criticizing a specific player and, uh, 
and and also you know like we kind of started this conversation with when you take into the contract into into account just just know that like <laughs> uh i'll borrow a line from jalen rose that i really like um and have stuck with me ever since i've heard him say but you never get what you deserve only what you have the leverage to negotiate and that is really true in the mm-hmm. nba and a lot of other situations right deserve throw that word out the window doesn't mean anything in the nba they get what they get whatever they have the leverage to negotiate and uh you know siakam went got his max deal good for him um it's not about whether or not he deserves it and there doesn't need to be a referendum on that every single night so yeah that's kind of where i'm at now with that but yeah you rock out in the context provided to you uh gary trent jr is allowed and, and credit to Gary Trent because his defensive uptake this year is great. But the reason yeah. why he is getting so many more steals this year isn't because he's suddenly the best at getting steals. It's that in the Raptors scheme, he's been mm-hmm. emboldened to gamble and try and get the home run plays. And he's hit on a lot of them. And like credit to him for the active hands, especially in the close quarters uh, thievery. But when you have OG Ananobi at the nail, that wing, that, you know, like, corner to above the break pass looks a lot more like you can feast on it because the angle, the arc, all that kind of stuff, you're affected greatly. And this is basically my main point with Siakam is why I'm optimistic about where he is. The defense is in shambles and Siakam Mm -hmm. has had, he's strung together like at best two good defensive games in a row since he's returned. I think he's had like three or four, eh, two bad ones and like two sterling ones. But mm-hmm. Pascal has affected the half-court offense in a really big, meaningful way. Yeah. And as we saw last year with the Raptors, who had Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, and uh, Pascal Siakam, that defense was still bad. Defense is very tricky, and one guy doesn't save it, especially when you don't have a rim protector in the middle. And so what I would say is Pascal is not saving the defense currently, and perhaps never will. But he is helping the offense immensely. And he's not he's not leaving the defense in cataclysmic positions. Like maybe somebody would try and have you believe, although he should be better (laughs) on that end. That is a fair critique. Although, you know, pointing to the 30th in defensive rating and saying, Pascal comes back, look what happens. That is not realistic. You have to. And as you said, macro, like if you see Gary Trent jr. Shooting four or five in the middle of the second quarter and Pascal is one for four, you can actually step back and say, these guys will finish this game shooting about the same percentage. That's, that's, that's what the reality is, right? Is like, there are bodies of work that you can kind of attend to that you can see and say, given what they do on the court, there's a relative expectation of what they will achieve. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Pascal is achieving close to what's expected of him, but we're pretending that it's nowhere near. And that I don't really understand, but anyway yeah and and to his credit like pascal knows like it's not like he's Mm -hmm. just like unaware of what uh is happening on the basketball court um he has talked about how he's like defensively yeah i'm not quite there yet i've been a step slow i've been a beat off uh and again he's largely attributed that to just getting back into the swing of things like we mentioned like he was has talked about a couple times how returning from the injury has been really difficult um and it's been, I think, noticeable, like even in some of the early games on on offense too, especially with the playmaking, <clears throat> some of those like larger turnover games, you could just tell like he saw the right play unfolding and went to make the correct pass. And then he was like a beat slow on it and the pass would get picked off. But it's like he had the idea. He saw it. He know he's it's still there in his head. Right. But he just. Uh, couldn't quite get there yet because he is a little rusty. He's off. He hasn't done this in so long. Maybe he's thrown, you know, with that shoulder. Uh, maybe he's a little tentative because of that, even subconsciously. You don't know. Like, there's a million things going on. Um, but, yeah, defensively, and, and like you mentioned, like, it's not always his fault either. Like, yeah, he hasn't been great every single game, but, yeah, there isn't. And then there's a lot of possessions where I've noticed, uh, you know, he's still trying. And uh, Siakam at his best is one of the, uh, most insane, you know, uh, players at covering the floor at, reco- at recovering to to shooters and like he just has that instinct to do that. And even if he's a little late now, 
uh, on some of those, especially when it's not his fault. It's like, he's still doing that. Like I, I, I can see him getting back to the Siakam of old. Uh, it's just going to take some time. And I, I fully believe he's going to get there. Yeah. Just a quick note, like the perfect example of Pascal's court coverage is the Raptors against the Golden State Warriors, and they got shellacked in the opening frame. But the rest yeah. of the game, they played them pretty even, and especially towards the end when they started not guarding Draymond above the free throw line. So you have yeah. Pascal, who was Draymond's check. Draymond is hanging out by the hash marks on the sideline. Pascal is ready for a soft double on Steph because they want the ball out of his hands. Draymond has about an eight-foot lead on Pascal. <laughs> Steph makes the pass two Wiggins in the corner, and Draymond mm-hmm. makes a beeline for the bucket. Siakam is starting about seven or eight feet behind and gets back in time to snatch the bounce pass that Wiggins made from the corner to the rolling Draymond. Like that level of court coverage is not, it's not unprecedented, but the league over, it's nearly unparalleled. And mm-hmm. that is what Siakam can unlock is like in these super aggressive schemes he can problem solve and he can erase problems and stuff like that. And so while that was just a small glimpse of what he does as a ceiling for his defensive play, uh, and he, he needs to be there more often, but uh, not very many players in the league can emulate that. In fact, like probably less than five. It's very special, his movement skills. And that's what's so excited, exciting, uh, I think, about the Siakam-Barnes combo when you're looking ahead is like Barnes is like, similar right like at his best like you and i talked about this i think uh before the season maybe um but like barnes's outlook as a defender in best case scenario was probably as a rover a similar uh situation to siakam and if you could get both those guys firing on the cylinders like you know after barnes has some experience has figured out the defense a little bit better um and, and how best to tackle the scheme for his skill set and all that type of stuff uh those two guys flying around off the ball defensively with the wingspan they've got, if they figure it out and they kind of, um, you know, get a two man defensive game going um, consistently, that is, I think that's where you start to get really excited about the future of the Raptors defense. Cause it, it, it could very easily start with those two guys um, connecting in that sort of way. You know, you've already got like Fred is already such a given what he does and he doesn't really, you know, he wouldn't really clash with those two and what they do um, that, that when you think about sort of the, uh, how to handle the, the wings and, and switching and uh, to, to the bigs that uh, uh, the Raptors can, the Raptors can handle, which, you know, is a list. Um, I just think that's the most exciting part of the, the Raptors defense looking forward, but yeah, those two guys. Um, so, also, and also quickly, I just wanted to bring up that uh, Siakam is a dude. I, again, people, I think people need to focus on the humanity a bit more, but Siakam as a guy is just the best man. He's given so many like post game interviews and stuff this season. And again, he hasn't been back for that long. He's given so many post game interviews already where he's like, hey, man, I'm just trying to be happy. I'm just trying to be out here playing basketball with my team. I'm trying to get some wins. Um, I'm, you know, he's like, he, no more talking. Like and he doesn't need to. Like I'm sure if you asked him, he would say it. But like he doesn't need to be talking about doing it for the fans at this point. It's like he's just trying to, you know, find himself. I think as a young man growing up and um, a guy who's in the spotlight for a, a basketball team. And that's been, it's been refreshing to hear him say that that is his focus because I think before he maybe spent a little too much energy trying to please people. That's it is very interesting how the paradigm continues to shift and because of standout players who do embody a more Zen outlook on the game of basketball because uh, basketball for many years was dominated by uh, psychopathic tendencies and Michael Jordan (laughs) deserves a lot of love for being if not the greatest like the second greatest player of all time. And Kobe Bryant has, you know, a resume that goes up against very many other players. Mamba mentality transcends his, you know, his uh, persona, all that kind of stuff. And those are things that fans can attach onto really easily because there is no um, burden to entry to thinking about, okay, what's, you know, what do they think? Are they trying? Do they care? And yeah. the fact is, like, CP3 is, like, the most 
incredible sheriff on the court. Like he is a domineering, you know, fascist on the basketball court. And he is super, super um, aggressive. And, you know, like the type of guy who's like trying to get text called all the time will correct yeah. refs on their own stuff. And he was up against Giannis Antetokounmpo in the finals. And Giannis, there was just a wonderful clip of him at practice. I've been through it all, man. I've missed free throws. I airballed them in close game. Like he's saying, he's like, I've been through it all. I lost everything. I haven't done anything yet in basketball. All I've done is lose and I'm <laughs> still here. And then he went 17 of 19 from the line, 50 points in, you know, in the closeout game in the finals, like a, a historic performance. And that was against the team that Devin Booker is, you know, to some people like the, the next up, and he's also supposed to be a maniac too. And Chris Paul definitely is. And they have Jay Crowder and they have the tough persona. And then you have bubbly Giannis who's like, you know, even if I lose a basketball, I still win at life. And he's the guy who wins. We don't mm-hmm. need, we don't need this crazy, crazy, insane. Everybody needs to be Kobe, you know, grimacing at his teammates after a win, that kind of stuff. So for yeah. Pascal, after a big performance to come on the mic and say, I, I had to remember to be kind to myself. Yep. I like that. And I yep. think a diversity in mindset is important for the sport. But fans aren't there yet in how they perceive it. They still think it's one way. And you have to be Jimmy Butler. Or you have to be like that type of way. And you don't. You just have to be the best. And you just have to be good. And Pascal certainly is good. Yeah. Uh, you don't. It, it's a problem. Right. Like it's a, it's problematic. Um, Like as for as great as Jordan and Kobe were uh, that sentiment that has woven itself into the discourse of basketball is a problematic one because it has now been uh, set as a a bar that great players need to meet in order to be great. And that is just simply not true. It's why LeBron still receives a lot of criticism, right? At his best, he's out there dancing. They used to always talk about on pregame, you know, uh, the guys that, that knew LeBron the best. Um, I remember when I was younger, it was one of the things that drew me to basketball initially was they were like, oh man, LeBron's out here dancing tonight. Like he's going to put up fifth, right? That's just his personality. That's who he is. And he has always been compared because he is so great to Jordan and to Kobe. Some compare him to Kobe um, because he doesn't have that same personality. And guess what? <laughs> he's still pretty great. He never had that personality. It's it's such a lack of imagination, right? It's critique what's different until you see it succeed. Mm-hmm. And when the real bag is appreciating what's different <laughs> and watching it succeed. You know, like, how fun is that, by the way? When something different comes along, like Anthony Edwards, for example, who is the coolest player in the NBA, by the way. Everybody loves him. <laughs> but yeah. it, there was like this rumor mill that was just, he doesn't care about basketball. Do you remember that? Like yep. Anthony Edwards, a yep. guy who exudes um, maybe the best vibes ever. Like, it's so much fun, so friendly, so nice. Just, oh my God, he's effervescent. And what, prior to the draft, everyone was saying, does he even like basketball? He, you know, does he care about anything? And it's like, okay, so you want him to go into every room and be an asshole to everybody. And then you would say, this guy's a winner. When in reality, come on, man. Like, there is there is a colorful mosaic of personalities in the NBA. And it's about context, it's about roster construction, and it's about opportunity. It is very rarely about dogmatic mindset, I think. Absolutely. And like this is another topic for another podcast somewhere else, and probably not a Raptors one, but I do, I will never forget that like people, there's the stories about Kobe. When Kobe entered the league, he was not his, uh, I'm doing air quotes again, his black mamba self yet. And he developed into that over the course of his career because of on-court and off-court experiences that he went through. And they're not necessarily positive when you look at them that way. And that was a guy who, at the time, felt like he did not have a lot of support and sort of retracted into this personality. And it ended up working out for him on the floor and I think it sort of bubbled into something that maybe it was never meant to be. And uh, people will talk about how his personality shifted. And you wonder how much of that, especially after he seemed to, you know, kind of revert a little bit in retirement and things like that, um, how much of that was actually him 
how much of himself did he have to hide as a player on the floor to be what other people wanted him to be, what he thought he should be as the heir to Michael Jordan, right? That's a heavy conversation to get into. But I just, it's, it's something I always think about when we talk about this kind of thing. Another guy from Philly uh, rode that line pretty well, Kyle Lowry. He was like, yeah, I'm going to enjoy everything on the court. But if I'm talking to a journalist, I'm going to be very curmudgeonly. And you know what? It's because journalists called him fat for like four years. So he was like, you guys don't get any part of my happiness. And uh, and he he compartmentalized in a very positive way, I think. Kyle Lowry crafted quite a career for himself. Yes, what a, ex, ex, he knows exactly what a very media savvy player Kyle Lowry. Yeah, knows exactly oh, totally. what he's doing. <laughs> he sold and, those uh, NFTs on his way out, man. He's, he's a savvy <laughs> man. And uh, a lot of Raptors players, I'll say, learned from Kyle Lowry in his time uh, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. If you if you see them in the locker room versus how they appear in front of the media. Um, I just want to close out this podcast. We're running out of time here, but I wanted to quickly just go through sort of the week that was here uh, and just ask. You know, the Raptors went one and three. This week, since I did the last podcast, they played the Jazz, they played the Kings, they played the Warriors. Uh, you know, two very good teams. Warriors, uh, best team in basketball right now. Um, the Jazz, a very good team that no one's talking about really, which is a par for the course. When you've been good for a couple of seasons, no one wants to talk about you unless you do anything in the playoffs. And then the Sacramento Kings, who are not so good of a team and in fact fired their coach after playing the Raptors and losing to them in uh, quite a quite a large loss that the final score did not um, articulate in the uh, clearest fashion. So uh, out of those three games, I just wanted to ask you real quick, if there was anything of interest in particular that stood out to you um, in, in any form, whether it was something that you've been looking for that showed itself or something you weren't expecting. Uh, was there anything from the week that was that stood out to Samson? Okay. Uh, I won't belabor this point, but with Luke Walton, uh, the less uh, abusers in the league or around it, the better. So I'm happy Great. for that. And as far as what was happening on the court, I actually, it was the Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes synergy. And Scotty Barnes, particularly in that second half against the Golden State Warriors, hit a couple of threes, made a play on the short roll for his own bucket. And when you're in the short roll, it's all about how you deal with the defense rotating towards you. How do you navigate those guys coming over, whether it's a guy on the tag or whether it's an actual rotation? And Scotty Barnes caught the ball, did a jump stop, and that was that perfect pacing to manage, okay, is it a tag or is it an actual rotation? And that's where you figure out if you're passing or you're going up with the ball. That's so fun to see because that is a real skill. It's a micro skill, but it's a real skill, one that Ken Birch, one that Pascal Siakam are both concurrently working on, and Scotty really nailed it. And not to mention, Nick Nurse says in to you know the media, "Hey, I want this guy taking more threes. I tell Scotty to take more threes. A couple threes in the back end of the Warriors game, and not to mention, like he had that wonderful offensive rebound, one dribble, the ball, a left-handed pass cross court to Pascal, who hit a three. Like that is fantastic court vision. Got the offensive rebound. Pascal was behind him. He was not in his court view." And he figured it out in just like he processed that read in half a second. Uh, Something I noticed in the jazz game is that Pascal Siakam is going to be super because of the way that this roster is constructed. He's going to be super reliant on his jumper. So if anybody's paying attention to that this year, if Pascal doesn't have the jumper going, there is going to be a dialogue because there's, you know, he works really hard to get to the rim. He's not Shea Gilgis Alexander leading the league in drives or anything. He drives a lot, but if a team is going to load up in the paint, expect a dialogue about Pascal if the rest of the team isn't shooting well. And then the Kings game, any guy who scores 32 on 12 shots, hell yeah, dude. And Gary Trent Jr., it didn't happen against the Warriors. He went three for 16, but he deserves love for the shot-making run that he's been on recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think it's sustainable, uh, the biggest thing that made me happy about you know the the game as far as the Warriors was that while he was three for sixteen, he was also three of eight from the three point line. And the biggest and most important thing for Pas or not for Pascal for Gary Trent Jr. is that he maintains his potency from three. And if he's feeling it, he can save some possessions in the mid range. But he deserves love for the incredible mid range performances off the bounce that he's had over the past few games. That's mostly what I've noticed so far. 
And yes, the Raptors defense continues to be a travesty. They should have never been trapping against the Jazz who built out this team that has four incredible ball movers and off ball movers uh, against a rotating defense is a bad mix. So I thought that was a bad uh, schematic decision for the Raptors. So that's my stuff from the week of games, I think. Yeah. Um, all pretty good. You got, I think got most of the things that I was thinking about. I did want to point out, cause I don't remember now if it was before this game or not, uh, but um I would be remiss with you on the podcast to not bring up that there was, I think it was before actually, but whatever. Um, there was a situation where Pascal and I think Fred uh, had a pick and roll. I think it was Fred. And uh, Sackham was rolling and got the ball on the roll and delivered a short roll pass to Scotty Barnes, who was cutting along the baseline towards the basket. And uh, I know you wanted an alley pass there. Um, but yeah. nonetheless, a pass and a dunk resulted. And uh, boy, that sequence sure was like, yeah, this, this is the kind of thing, right? Again, another play where it's like, I can see it. I can see That's it. That's the can, vision, dude. It's right. Yeah, it's right there. Uh, on that note, just one more thing I wanted to note quickly is that can we, <laughs> can we get Siakam some into any kind, any kind at all of more screening action um, in terms of trying to get him going i i'm not into, i understand to a degree especially in seasons past and it was uh, last season uh, largely where nurse liked to put siakam on the block and get him the ball down there in isolation and let him work from there because siakam's a really good player and he is a good isolation player not a, an elite one but a good one um he's a very good playmaker he has a lot of skills from where you start him from the post you can get a lot of things going if you have a lot of off-ball actions working around him as well um but a lot of those possessions this season have, haven't necessarily started from the post. Um, and it's just been a lot of isolation plays. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, it just, like the most, like, it, you know, whether it doesn't even need to be Siakam as a roller, although I do like that as well in certain situations, but there uh, just seems to be a lack of help coming his way. And there just seems to be an expectation early on even here that, to get him going. It's just get the ball in his hands and, and he'll figure it out. Not entirely sure why that is. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think teams are more willing to switch um, when he gets the mismatch in the post. Basically, if, if you see Pascal yeah. guarded by a small, he's going straight to the block. He really mm-hmm. is. You just watch him do it. But teams, they'll whether it's a scram or whether they're just going to switch as he works his way down there, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. They're doing that pretty freely this year, probably because yeah. those teams, those coaching staffs um, had access to the advanced passing, like tracking data where Pascal registered as one of the best passers in the NBA in terms of quality of shots created, largely mm-hmm. because he's a fantastic, fantastic passer out of the post. And I think mm-hmm. so that leaves like there's pass. And as you said, not elite, but good in isolation these things will be constantly changing and kind of the lines that he succeeds in will move this year because he's playing with a super cerebral rookie who is acclimating every game and getting better at certain things every game. And OG Ananobi is burgeoning in his own way. And so Pascal will be like a sliding scale of different responsibilities offensively because even though the meme is that he all he does is spin truthfully at his position, at his size, he's an extremely versatile player. And I love when he is being used in a versatile way. That's that's what Sacramento was. It wasn't that he was isoing and getting his spots. He was used in a myriad of situations against Sacramento, succeeded in a bunch of them. And yeah, the last two seasons, 2019-20 and 2020-21, he has overwhelmingly positive pick-and-roll numbers as a ball handler per synergy. I'd like to see it explored. If Delano Banton... Who, oh God, this dude made such a great read to Precious Sachua, who had a dunk out of a Spain pick and roll. Uh, Fred Van Vliet can set that back screen just as well as Kyle Lowry did. Uh, let's get Pascal some screen help. Let's see what he can do, man. Uh, yeah, just stuff I'd like to see. But uh, th- there's some good, there's some bad always. I once described years ago Draymond Green as the paragon of potpourri play. Uh, <laughs> It was in my uh, phase where I could not stop using alliteration, evidently. Um, still kind of in that phase a little bit. Uh, Siakam's not quite that, but he is a pretty great Swiss Army knife if you're looking he's, for one. 
He's an amalgam of many things, brother. He knows how to put it together. <laughs> he is indeed. And on that note, I think uh, we're going to close off here uh, before I start rambling off for too long. So uh, I just want to thank you for coming on again, Samson. Uh, appreciate it as always. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Oh, man. Uh, Joshua's work. <laughs> which I enjoy endlessly and all wow. the conversations that I look forward to having with him in the future. Uh, if you want anything from me, if you, you know, if you listen to this and thought, Hey, I like this guy's whole thing. That's awesome. Thanks. I hope you, I hope you uh, listen to some of my work or read some of my work. And if you didn't like it, then, Hey man, I, or, or woman, I really respect what you're doing. Okay. It's tough to listen to something and walk away saying I wasted my time. And I very well may have done that for you. So my apologies. If that is someone's thought, then they should just not listen to this podcast anymore because uh, I'm evidently going to have a lot of this kind of talk on here and hopefully you specifically back in the future. So uh, yeah, a listener, this is what this podcast is going to be. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And um, yeah, please go read Minute Basketball and or listen to Minute Basketball as well. Uh, that is what Samson writes uh, as a newsletter that Samson writes along with Lewis Zatzman, another fantastic basketball writer who tends to focus on the Raptors. Um, it is very unique in what it uh, presents and the, uh, the, st the style of writing involved. And uh, it's just a joy. It's a joy every week. It, it's right up there with uh, Basketball Feelings, which is another great uh, uh, basketball newsletter by Katie Heindel. Another fantastic uh, Raptors writer, although she writes about a bunch of things too. Anyway, please go read Minute Basketball and or listen to Minute Basketball because you won't be reading anything else like it. Um, if you are looking for episodes of this podcast, it is called The Raptors Room. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. You can also follow the Clutch Points Raptors account on Twitter at Raptors Nation CP, where links to everything and anything Raptors will be posted. And then until next time, you can follow me at Alvolution on Twitter. If for whatever reason you want to uh, find my online work, it is at clutchpoints.ca.com. Sorry, .ca. See, this is me being too Canadian. Uh, .com this season, uh, and you can read me there. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and or night.